Hello, Freedom Fighters, and welcome to the First in Freedom podcast, where we discuss current threats to our freedom, how they impact us here at home, and what we can do to stop it. Thanks to the long weekend and a local ice storm, you get a bonus episode. Today, we go behind the scenes in the Trump White House and review the book, A Plague Upon Our House, My Fight at the Trump White House to Stop COVID from Destroying America by Dr. Scott Atlas. So I'm your host, Jason Fibbs, and with the help of patriots like Dr. Scott Atlas, we're taking freedom back. Freedom is a fragile thing, and it's never more than one generation away from extinction. If we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on Earth. So to get into today's show and and go over the book here, let's start with uh, just a quick overview of who Dr. Scott Atlas is, because I just want to make sure that people are clear on his record for those who, who may not be familiar. Dr. Scott Atlas, MD, is the Robert Wesson Senior Fellow in Healthcare Policy at the Hoover Institution of Stanford University. Dr. Atlas investigates the impact of the government and private sector on access, quality, and pricing in healthcare and key issues related to the future of technology-based innovation. He is a frequent policy advisor to policymakers and government officials in the United States and other countries. He has served as senior advisor for health care to several candidates for president, counseled key government officials, and testified before Congress on health care. From August through November 2020, he served as a special advisor to President Trump and as a member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. It goes on, has a lot more accolades and different things that he's received, but the bottom line is um, he knows what he's doing. In fact, I guess just a, a little bit of his medical background. Before his appointment at the Hoover Institution, he was professor and chief of neuroradiolog- neuroradiology at Stanford University Medical Center for 14 years, and he's the author of numerous books. So bottom line is Dr. Scott Atlas uh, knows what he's doing, a very intelligent man, works at a very prestigious university, and has made an incredible contribution uh, to our country. And through his book gives us a great insight into how everything got started last year and what he experienced in his four months or so while he was there. So first I want to start off with um, why he wrote the book. And in the book, Dr. Atlas says, uh, this book is written with several purposes in mind. First, it will serve as an important part of the historical record of the greatest healthcare crisis in the past century, the pandemic and its management. The four-month period during my service as advisor to the President of the United States will provide a candid perspective on how our leaders functioned in this crisis without the distorting lenses of the media and politics. Second, it will clarify the facts underlying the pandemic, free from the filter of government bureaucrats, academics, and scientists with political and other biases. Third, it will expose profound issues in our society that could interfere with our ability to address future crises and threaten the very principles of freedom and order that we often take for granted that the rest of the world depends on. The reader should feel confident of two certainties. One is that every word in this book, every event described, every statement quoted is absolutely true. The second is that several people described in this book will vehemently deny its truth. That is expected, not only because they will have been exposed in the light of day beyond the protection of their media allies, but also because we have already witnessed their behavior with regard to truth. We should know who to trust by now. So there, Dr. Atlas clearly outlines that you know this is being recorded for posterity. Um, this is to provide clarity um, and to expose a lot of the issues. 
And so Dr. Atlas really doesn't have uh, an axe to grind in this other than uh, just reporting on what he saw. He's not, uh, while he has advised political candidates, he's advised political candidates on both sides of the aisle, um, was certainly not known as a partisan before coming into this, uh, but simply was someone who saw what was going on and wanted to get involved. Just some general, uh, I guess, you know, reflections on the book from my own perspective. Um, the book's about 332 pages. Um, it's fairly large print, uh, which makes it a pretty easy read. It's not, you know, hard to get through. Um, it can be repetitive at times, so you can tell he, he wrote this book in a hurry, you know, trying to get it out before the end of last year. So it, it kind of circles back around to things, which, you know, kind of helps from a reinforcement perspective. Um, he's got some really great anecdotes in here, tells some really good stories about what went on behind the scenes. And he does make a very solid effort um, at objectivity. So overall, I think it's a really good book, um, one that I definitely recommend. And just want to spend some time today sharing with you some observations um, that I think will be helpful and very informative into what's gone on over the past uh, year or so. So how did Scott Atlas get to D.C.? Um, well, first, the fear there were fear and false claims that were uh, being provided from the WHO, the W or the World Health Organization, that seemed to take over. And so, just to give you a flavor of what those sounded like, or what how he uh, laid those out, he writes: uh, despite uh, well, several fear-provoking claims about the coronavirus were becoming ingrained in public mind. These false claims had been initiated by the WHO but were amplified by a constant drumbeat from epidemiologists and others in the public limelight. And here's the list he provides. This SARS-2 coronavirus is extraordinarily deadly, far more deadly than the flu by several orders of magnitude. Virtually everyone is at high risk to die. No one has any immunity because this virus is entirely new. Everyone is dangerous and spreads the infection. Asymptomatic people are, are major drivers of the spread. Testing virtually everyone is urgently needed, and all those testing positive should be isolated. Locking down everyone is essential, closing schools and businesses, confining people to their homes, and isolating everyone from others and even their own family members is urgently needed. Everyone should wear masks because masks will protect everyone and stop the spread. The only protection is from a vaccine, and that is years away. So those were the talking points that were scaring the mess out of everybody and being promoted uh, chiefly from the World Health Organization and then being parroted by all of the other health organizations like the CDC and the NIH and others. So starting there, as, as he started to see that and then start to look at the data on his own, he and some of his colleagues at Stanford started to draw some very different conclusions about what was going on, and the data started to, real very, to reveal very different things. So Atlas um, started to write opinion pieces um, in uh, magazines or news organ uh, news publications like The Hill and others. And there was one particular piece he wrote in The Hill that ultimately went viral. That led to him starting to do news interviews. And then after he started uh, doing the news interviews, that led to him being called to testify before a uh, Senate committee on Homeland Security. This was around May of 2020. And then also all, all while this is going on, um, he's noticing the damage that lockdowns are doing. He's trying to speak out about that, um, that school closures by this point were absolutely unnecessary and that schools should be reopened. Um, he also noticed that the extreme negative bias of the media, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. He was uh, started to be quoted by Kelly McEnany, who was the White House press, press secretary uh, for President Trump. So um, he was getting quoted by her. 
And then ultimately, uh, Atlas was called to join the task force um, in July. So that's just sort of a quick overview of different sort of events. And obviously, he's got a lot of different details and stories about how that happens. Um, but that's sort of how he got there. So what did, uh, what did Scott Atlas learn while he was in D.C.? Well, first of all, he learned that no one knew hire, who hired Deborah Burks. So Deborah Burks was sort of effectively the uh, chief coordinator of the, of the White House task force. Um, of course, the task force was being led by Vice President Mike Pence. But Deborah Burks was sort of the key figure and the one that really was driving a lot of the policy decisions, her and then combined with Anthony Fauci. But what was interesting about Deborah Burks was that uh, Atlas identifies that no one knew who hired her. So as he started to get into Washington or at the White House and, and started to get involved, and, and it was clear that it was there was a lot of sensitivity around uh, Deborah Burks's presence. In other words, she was very intimidated by anyone else coming in from the outside to, to offer alternative views or perspectives, et cetera. And so um, he asked, you know, who hired her? And no one could identify basically who hired her. So that was very strange, um, he thought. Um, also, he noticed almost right away that, and, and a lot of us saw this in the media, was that Trump was sending a very different message than Fauci and Burks were sending. Trump wanted to reopen the economy. Um, he was talking about reopening. He was talking about alternative treatments. And Fauci and Burks were basically saying the exact opposite. Um, they were essentially ignoring what he was saying, and they were going on and, and doing different things. So, um, as uh, I mentioned earlier, the lockdowns and, and, and Dr. Atlas uh, talked about the lockdowns were failing. And yet the uh, administration, or not really the administration, but Fauci and Burks had a very different perspective on these lockdowns. So let me read you a quote from that. So Dr. Atlas says, uh, by the time I arrived, lockdowns had already been implemented throughout the country for months, including strict business restrictions and school closures, as well as quarantines of healthy asymptomatic people. Those lockdowns were continually pushed successfully by Dr. Fauci, Drs. Fauci and Burks to nearly all governors and throughout the media. Those policies, the Burks-Fauci lockdowns, were widely implemented and they were destroying America's children and families. Meanwhile, hundreds of thousands of deaths kept piling up, including tens of thousands of elderly Americans. Their policies were in place and were failing. Yet that failure was not only disregarded, it was taken to mean that the lockdowns were needed even more. So he notes here that there was, there was a huge blind spot or just ignorance of the fact that what they were promoting was being implemented and was killing thousands of people across the country, tens of thousands of people. And yet they only took that as a message that they needed to be implemented even harder. And I think we've seen this, you know, over the past two years that, you know, when we talk about mask policies or vaccine policies, it's like, oh, well, 50% of the people are vaccinated and yet cases are still spiking. Well, that's because 100% of people aren't vaccinated or, oh, well, you know, Everybody's been wearing masks in schools forever. Well, yeah, but only 90% of people have been wearing masks. If 100% of people wore masks, then things would be, we'd be better. So it's this constant sort of one-up of, well, if, if it was just more, if it was just more, then things would be better. And of course, none of those things have ever worked. We've seen it time and time and again, where cases continue to spike, no matter what the uh, sort of mitigation strategies that have been promoted over the past two years um, have done. And so uh, kind of moving on from there, Another point that, that Dr. Atlas makes, which is critical to all of this, and I think this was definitely a good observation, was he noted the confusion of people, and this was primarily, I think, being promoted by the media, the confusion between who actually was 
calling the shots in terms of how it affects us locally. So when it when it came to COVID policies and strategies, yes, you know, Fauci and Burks were the were sort of the key mouthpieces that were pushing information out. Um, he goes on to note that um, Burks was Dr. Burks was the key person who was meeting with all of the the uh, state officials and passing along these strategies and telling them what to do. But ultimately, the federal government cannot tell the states what to do. They couldn't control the states. It was ultimately up to the states. So with respect to that, uh, Dr. Atlas says, one confusion that was amplified by the media was the division of responsibility for the management of the pandemic. Being a federalist system, the pandemic response was a joint effort between the federal government, the states, and local municipalities. In a practical sense, the federal government provided support for the state-based decisions, which were then implemented on a local level. All on-the-ground policies were the purview of the governors, the chief executive of each state, not the president. That authority was not delegated by President Trump. It is the constitutional authority of the governor in our federalist system, and it was appropriately demanded by each governor. But of course, with that authority necessarily comes responsibility. Each state designs it, designed its own lockdowns, mandates, school closures, and personal restrictions, and each governor bears responsibility for the outcomes of those policies. So regardless of what direction was being provided from the coronavirus task force, from the CDC, wherever, and even to this day, whatever policies are ultimately being implemented within the state, uh, gov- state and local governments are the responsibility of those state and local officials. So in North Carolina, Governor Cooper and all the policies they implemented, of course, they, you know, they, they'll say over and over again, well, the CDC says this and the CDC says that. But what we need to be very clear on is that that doesn't mean that we have to do those things. Whatever it is that we've implemented based on what federal health officials have said have been the distinct choice of our state. And we see the differences. States like Florida, now most recently uh, with Glenn Youngkin being elected in Virginia, we see his immediate uh, pullback of mass mandates and vaccine mandates. So a lot of the things that have been done uh, here in our state and then both locally within your own county and whatever uh, policies and, and, um, and mitigation strategies have been implemented by your city councils or your county commissioners, those are the, the, the responsibility of those people. So don't let anybody get away with, well, this is what the CDC says we have to do, or well, this is what the NIH or, or the FDA says we have to do. No, that's not right. Almost all of these policies and mitigation strategies were decided upon by state and local health officials. So that's key to remember as we go through uh, all of this, and even just as we reflect on what's happened over the past two years, to remember to hold all of these folks accountable for what they've done. Getting into the coronavirus task force. So the task force, again, as I mentioned, was uh, led by um, Vice President Pence. Um, As I said before, Deborah Burke's role at the task force, um, she was sort of the key liaison with all of the governors in the states, or or at least any state officials who would meet with her after a while. Um, Dr. Atlas mentions that there were a lot of people who didn't want to talk to her anymore because they thought what she was doing was crazy because it wasn't working. Um, He notes that the, I guess, in terms of how the the, um, task force interacted with each other. Um, He makes a really interesting observation, um, something that I think you might find surprising. He says, I also noticed that there was virtually no disagreement among them. 
It was an amazing consistency, as though there were an agreed-upon complicity, even though some of their statements were so patently simplistic or erroneous that others in the room, even those without medical backgrounds, sometimes felt compelled to make corrections. I found myself grateful to people like Seema Verma, Mark Short, the VP's chief of staff, and others who occasionally spoke up to challenge their conclusions, grateful because at some meetings, I felt burnt out, simply unable to muster the energy to yet again correct something so unmistakably wrong. That happened most commonly when selective correlations were assumed to be cause and effect, like a non-scientist might conclude, for example, pointing to the correlation of cases with the timing of a mandate in one state, but ignoring that comparison in a different state where it did not correlate. Even on those strikingly unsound conclusions, Drs. Burks, Fauci, and Redfield, who was head of the CDC at that time, virtually always agreed, literally never challenging one another. That's incredible, isn't it? I mean, here we have the the coronavirus task force at the White House. These are the the federal health officials that have been put in charge of this pandemic. And they're sitting in a room. And despite incorrect after incorrect information being put in front of them, no one questioning anything, no one arguing with anyone, no one challenging, just taking everything verbatim. Like he says, almost as if there was an agreed-upon complicity. It was almost like they decided before they even went into the room, yeah, this is what we're going to do. Nobody's going to question it, and here we go. Does that sound like science to you? Isn't Dr. Fauci the one who has claimed to be the science to us? And yet his version of quote-unquote science is sitting in a room and believing every lie that comes across the table without questioning anything. That's not the scientific method. The scientific method, as you all probably learned in grade school, is making a hypothesis and then testing those hypotheses, getting evidence, and then drawing conclusions. That's the scientific method. Everything can be questioned, and yet clearly that's not what we see happening within the uh, coronavirus task force. Um, also, there was a lack of uh, healthcare policy um, experts within the group, um, which was something that was sort of a key challenge. Um, that's exactly what Dr. Atlas was bringing to the table. So he, said, he writes, for example, at this juncture, the testing was not being done to yield statistically valid surveillance information, a legitimate use of testing in the midst of a pandemic. This was, a, this was diagnostic testing with broad-reaching policy aims. In this pandemic, a positive test was a major driver of the policy of quarantining and isolating healthy people with low risk profiles, shuttering businesses, closing schools, in short, a key to locking down the country. That's why health policy experts like myself, with a broader scope of expertise than that of epidemiologists and basic scientists, are needed, because no one with a medical science background who also considered the impacts of the policies was advising the White House. That lack of perspective was the main source of the tunnel vision focus on preventing the spread of infections to the exclusion of all other considerations. So here Dr. Atlas makes clear that there was a complete focus on just doing things without considering the impacts of the things we were doing. What does it mean to test everybody? Well, to test everybody means that, you know, essentially if you're, if you're looking for, you know, a, a boogeyman behind every tree, you're going to find one. And so as the, the testing increases, the, the, the positive, that means more positive tests. And then more positive tests means more quarantine. And more quarantine means ultimately shutting down society. And the testing has been the key to everything. And that's why we've got to stop the mass testing. 
testing everywhere for everybody, for everything all the time, whether they're sick or not, that's what's helping to drive and perhaps even core at driving the madness and the hysteria and, and ultimately leading to all of these additional mitigation steps. We're not thinking about the severity of the infections. We're just thinking about whether or not someone is positive or not. And so if they're positive, then therefore that could ultimately be a catastrophe and therefore we must shut down everything. And that was the wrong strategy. And until Dr. Atlas showed up, they didn't have anybody there helping them with that. And also one of the chief criticisms that Dr. Atlas received from the media and others was that he was not an epidemiologist. Well, number one, he wasn't brought there to be an epidemiologist. But number two, no one on the task force was an epidemiologist. Fauci and Burks were an epidemiologist, nor were any of the other people. So that criticism leveled at him is the same for any of these other folks. And that wasn't his job. His job was not to be an epidemiologist. It was to be a health policy expert, which is his background. And by the way, has tons of uh, clinical and medical training as well. And so it was completely qualified um, to, to provide that uh, perspective. Um, there was a parallel world um, in the White House, and this is kind of going back to the, um, the, the Trump, uh, Trump versus the task force and sort of what was, I guess, the environment and how they were, you know, messaging and things. So Dr. Atlas says, I soon began to appreciate the terrain inside the White House and therefore what my role would encompass. Two parallel worlds concerning the pandemic existed in the administration, and these worlds were in direct opposition to each other. On one hand, the president had identified by his own common sense what was patently obvious. It made no sense to suddenly shut down the entire American economy, essentially lock up everyone for a virus that was severely dangerous only to the elderly and others with significant underlying diseases. On the other hand, his own administration's public health experts on the uh, VP's task force were putting forward recommendations that promoted the very strategy he opposed, restricting business operations, testing and quarantining healthy people, closing schools, reducing group sizes, limiting travel and family gatherings. And those contradictory recommendations were not just presented in the media and to the public. All internal meetings involving Burks were filled with warnings and exhortations advocating locking society down, although never using those words. The medical recommendations in the task force meetings run by the VP focused only on stopping the virus and never once cautioned about the health impacts of closures and confinements. So again, this was a theme that kept running through was this sort of dual world that was going on in the White House. And as you can imagine, if you have you know, a business and your business leader is telling you to do one thing and then the people who work for that business are doing something totally different, you're not going to be a good position. Again, going back to what Dr. Atlas saw within the meetings, um, he says, what bothered me the most was the absence of discussion about the research, the unsophisticated thinking about the data, the lack of attention to detail about the studies. You know, it's just, it, it's mind-blowing and frustrating at the same time that, again, the people that were leading the pandemic strategy were so unsophisticated, as he says, and ignorant about what was going on. There was very little discussion about all of the research that was coming out literally on a daily basis about what we were learning about the virus and, and how best to treat it. And obviously this was leading to strategies that were destroying people. I mean, these were destroying people's lives. These were literally killing people. Um, and yet there was no question about it. There's a particular story that he mentions here um, that will give you a good example of what this 
of what this sounded like or what this looked like. Um, they were having a conversation um, and they were talking about lockdowns and sort of the impacts and things of that nature. And Dr. Atlas says, I went on to briefly make the case that we should not lock down everyone since that was enormously harmful. Instead, we needed to do a better job protecting the high risk with far more diligence. Their indirect protection strategy was not working. It was in place nearly everywhere in the country, yet the elderly kept dying, and meanwhile, society was being destroyed. Schools were closed, even though kids had such low risk. Their strategy was being implemented, and it was not just failing to save the elderly. The Birx-Fauci lockdowns were killing people, destroying families and children from skip medical care, generating massive psychological harms, heartbreaking drug and child abuse, and quantifiable lives lost from unemployment. How did I know this? I had done the research myself in collaboration with scholars from three other academic institutions. I had analyzed the data in detail on the harms of lockdown, and I had written a paper on it earlier. The others on the task force clearly had not. Everyone was basically frozen. Tension filled the room. No one offered any study or data to refute the severe harms of the lockdown or anything else I said. I felt a pit in my stomach, seeing how angry Burks was, particularly since this was my introduction to the group. But I reminded myself that this was why I was asked to participate. Their biggest problem was not simply that they were not epidemiologists, an irony unrecognized by the press. The problem was that I was the only health care policy scholar in the room. I was the only one there with a medical background who also considered the enormous health impacts of the Birx-Fauci policy itself. And so here he gives a lot of information provided with data and statistics, etc., about the lockdown strategy and how they weren't working and how people were dying and they were hurting people, etc. And there was just frozen silence. No refutation, no alternative data, no, hey, Scott, you're wrong because, and let me give you the reasons, just silence. And then they would just ignore him and move on. Um, he talked about the harms of a lockdown several times to them. Um, there was also another story um, about testing guidance, and I think this gives also a good example of, of how things were working and, and also the, the, how the media was affecting what was going on too. And so I think this is another th important thing to, to call out in this is that while many of us sort of dismiss the media as just, you know, oh, well, they're just talking heads and, you know, they do this and that and everybody knows that, the fact is, is that they are influencing policy. They're having a huge impact. And so while what they're saying is damaging, it is also having an effect. I'm just going to read a few snippets here to kind of pull this story together uh, over a few pages. But it just says, Days later, the CDC posted its new testing guidance. It was similar to what the entire task force had indeed agreed upon at the second-to-last meeting, along with the added nursing home guidance. It was a solid document, detailing the recommendations described by Giroir and Redfield at the task force in language that was imperfect, but that the general public might understand. And so he basically they were talking about more targeted ways to do testing. And that was one of the things he had been really harping on was that we should be testing everybody everywhere. We ought to be focused on these high-risk scenarios such as nursing homes and, and things where the elderly and people with uh, high comorbidities, et cetera, are being impacted. And so he had worked with the task force. They had put together a really good document. They, they put it out there. This is by the CDC. Everything had been approved, the whole deal. And he says almost right away, though, the pushback was on full display. He goes on to say, these people had zero knowledge, 
yet, and talking about the media, these people had zero knowledge yet were overtly defiant of the authorities they used to swear by, the CDC, Fauci, and Burke. So everybody was trashing it, yet no one was mentioning the fact that Fauci and Burks were behind this as well, that everybody had approved and signed off on it. He goes on to say a little bit later, the media was rabid. Anonymous, quote-unquote, officials were quoted saying that the document was, quote, published against scientists' objections, end quote, as if the scientists they always trusted, Fauci, Burks, the CDC, HHS, and the FDA, had not all approved and written it, as if the director of the CDC himself had not written, finalized, and then published the document himself. What happened next was another welcome to Washington moment. Suddenly, after that two-week flurry of media hit pieces, politically filled accusations, and a full-throttle takedown of many public health organizations, a new testing guidance popped up on the CDC website. No discussion at the task force, no explanation given, no request for input from others with knowledge about such a complex and impactful issue, and it reflected a 180-degree reversal of the revision of two weeks earlier. So they moved it all back to what it was before. So he goes to Redfield, the head of the CDC. He says, I asked Redfield what had happened. He replied with some unintelligible explanation, trying to trivialize the change, and then offhandedly remarked that, quote, he and the ambassador discussed it and revised it, end quote. And that was it. I mean, think about that. Here we have our policy experts, task force people, everybody gets together. They actually do some real work. They talk about what should be done. They agree to new policies and procedures on testing that would greatly benefit the country, that would focus it where it needs to be, get it off of the places that it does, doesn't need to be. And after two weeks of media criticism, no, no task force meeting, they just change it back. And that was it. No discussion, no updates, no nothing. And this type of thing happened over and over again. Burks, again, as I mentioned, uh, was the lone voice of the task force to the states. And that's, and that's critical because when we think about who was our states listening to, well, the only voice they were hearing was that of Fauci and Burks, unless they sought it out otherwise. So Burks was the one who was mainly going to the states, and then Fauci was doing the media spots. That's pretty much the one-two punch that you had going on. And so if you want to know where we were getting our information from in terms of North Carolina, I'm assuming it was from Burks. And in fact, I've um, made a public records request to the Department of Health and Human Services to get all of the email interactions between Deborah Burks and former Secretary of Health Mandy Cohen, as well as Mandy Cohen and Governor Cooper. I'd like to see exactly what they were saying to each other. Um Let's see, there were some confrontations. Uh, Burks and Atlas had a confrontation in the Oval Office. That was pretty interesting. There's a good anecdote in here about that and sort of how that played out in front of President Trump. Um, essentially, there was a disagreement, and you know, I, I'll kind of just use that as a way to encourage you to, to go read further. So that, that was a pretty interesting story and, and uh, one, again, that I think was very revealing. It also kind of shows you how uh, Trump was interacting with these folks as well. Um, one thing that Scott Atlas notes, and I think this is particularly important, was around White House communications. As you can imagine, um, you know, President Trump talked all the time and still talks about the fact that, you know, the the you know fake news media, right, mainstream media and their bias and all of that, and, and they're terrible, and he, he goes on and on about that, and, and most of that is true. Um, and so, therefore, wouldn't you assume that a president that was being so misaligned by the mainstream press would have, you know, just the top, 
or best White House communications team imaginable, right? I mean, they would just get uh, the most qualified people and all the folks that they think that would, uh, you know, be able to handle that for them. Well, he tells this story about his sort of unveiling to the press. So for a good while during Dr. Atlas's time there, he was working behind the scenes. And then there was an incident that came up where he was sort of put in front uh, unexpectedly. So um, he had gone to the president to correct some data that he had before he went in front of his press briefing. And basically at that time, we'll kind of see how it plays out from there. So Dr. Atlas says unexpectedly, he turned to look over his shoulder. Scott, want to come in with me? Kushner, who was Jared Kushner, um, uh, President Trump's son-in-law and one of his chief advisors, Kushner and I looked at each other. We both knew this would alter the plan of my remaining in the background. I instinctively said, okay, sure. And we began walking. Jared smiled, shrugged his shoulders and said, okay, well, here goes. Good luck. The president, Kaylee, so that's Kaylee McEnany, the White House press secretary. The president, Kaylee, and I walked toward the entrance. I nervously turned to Kaylee. Kaylee, please tell me exactly where to go, exactly where to sit, exactly what to do. Smiling to, at my anxiety, she instructed me to enter first before her and sit in the far chair on the side. So I did. And for that briefing, all I could do was sit there and try to come up with something, just in case the president asked, as he often did, if I wanted to say a few words. What didn't happen, or that didn't happen, and I was relieved. However, my unveiling in the briefing room was handled very awkwardly with only an offhanded comment from the president at the podium. Quote, everyone knows Scott Atlas, right? Scott is a very famous man who is also highly respected. He's working with us and will be working with us on the coronavirus, and he has many great ideas, end quote. Instead of explaining my background as a health policy expert of more than 15 years with an extensive medical background, it was left to the press to define me, and of course they did. That lack of preparedness by the White House communications team was harmful to me and the president himself. This episode foreshadowed many shocks about the workings of the White House. I assumed that everyone in the West Wing would understand that if the special advisor to the president was attacked, it undermined the president's own credibility. Of course, that was the intent of the attackers, which is why it continues even today. At the very least, I had anticipated that the White House would be on solid footing in terms of dealing with the hostile press. I expected a highly skilled, coordinated group that knew how to push back on fake news because that seemed to be a constant in Washington. I could not have been more wrong. Not only was there no polished, professional team prepared for dealings with the press, it was as if there was no previous experience with such dealings. Kaylee herself was absolutely outstanding. She knew her stuff cold, and her preparation on a huge portfolio of issues was truly amazing. I was constantly in awe of her poise, but even more at her total mastery of the material. Other than Kaylee, though, the White House communication team was amateurish at best. To my knowledge, they reported to Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. With one or two exceptions, the team was a group of young people, very nice, but in way over their heads. And folks, this is a crusher. When, when you have a White House communications team that is amateurish at best, in Dr. Alice's opinion, then this puts you in a terrible spot, especially when you are being attacked mercilessly on a regular basis by a media, uh, by a left-wing media that pretty much controls all of the mainstream airways. So I think that was extremely revealing. And again, you see that um, sort of play itself out uh, throughout Dr. Atlas's time there with the, uh, with the, the task force. Um, he says, uh, he, he sort of speaks to what he sees as Trump's critical flaw in all of this. And again, sort of another theme that plays itself out. Um, 
Dr. Atlas writes, um, this schizophrenic messaging from the White House, I believe, represented one of the president's most significant errors of judgment. The way I saw it, the problem was the president's blind faith in those closest to him. He relied too much on his most trusted political advisors. No matter what the president himself said, the vice president and the political team, almost everyone really, feared Fauci and Burks, who held extremely high public approval. That autonomy was not just realized by Fauci and Burks. It was incentivized by the adulation they received in the media as they kept articulating opinions contrary to the president. There were serious consequences from this pattern of contradictory information. It exacerbated the confusion in the public and increased the fear that the leadership was off track. And I don't know about you, but I remember myself thinking last year, you know, like, gosh, it, there, there's two different messages going on here. Why, why won't Trump get these guys in line? Clear, Trump's clearly saying one thing. Fauci and Burks are clearly saying something else. And this was a huge error in judgment on Trump's part, not to do something about it. Um, his advisors were letting him down as well. And what uh, Dr. Alice kind of points out is that the whole thing around protecting Fauci and Burks was about the election. Um, as I mentioned here, or as Dr. Atlas mentioned in the book, Fauci and Burks held high, uh, extremely high public approval ratings. And again, that was the fault of the administration. They had put them out there in front of everybody. Um, and the fact that they went against the president made the media only eat them up even more. It, if Dr. Atlas, I mean, if, um, if Fauci and Burks had gone out there and would have been speaking the president's message, they would have been demonized as well. But the fact that they were speaking the opposite it almost was like a magnifier. It, it, gave, it gave them an amplified voice um, against the president, which created even more harm than normal. So not only were people afraid because of all the, the fear-mongering that was going on out in the media and coming directly from the task force, but also because there was no confidence in that anybody knew what was going on. When you've got your, your White House administration severely conflicted, about what the strategy is, and then promoting those dual messages, that doesn't evoke any confidence in anyone. Um, Dr. Atlas has some interactions with Fauci that um, showed Fauci's ignorance, and there's some pretty interesting anecdotes in there about that. Um, I'll, I'll get to some of that here with some of these other stories, but just know that there's more than the, obviously what I'm sharing here, and I think they're very revealing, especially since Dr. Fauci is still in his role. Of course, Deborah Burks has moved on. Um, but Fauci still being in place. I think any information you can get out of this uh, related to Fauci is important. Um, he continued to point out testing flaws, but there was no change in policy. Um, Dr. Alice, at one point, he makes the case um, that schools were not vulnerable. So I want to share a little bit about how that went, um, because that was, uh, was another interesting story. And again, I think revealing about the kind of folks he was dealing with here and what it was like. When the uh, vice president came to K-12 school policy as the next agenda item, he called on me to speak. He knew that I felt strongly about this issue. It was not just because the scientific case was so clear-cut. It was another surreal misapplication of common sense, one that totally defied logic. Schools were indeed unique, uniquely low-risk. The biggest difference between a school and elsewhere was that schools were lower-risk environments, less dangerous than the surrounding community. We knew children had an incredibly low risk from this virus. The idea that children represented a serious danger to adults was also directly counter to all the world's data. One of the, world's, uh, one of the largest studies in the world on coronavirus in schools carried out in 100 institutions in the UK confirmed that, quote, there is very little evidence that the virus is transmitted, in quote, in schools. Children had even been called breaks on the spread of the infection by researchers in Germany. 
Yet somehow in the midst in the minds of this team of public health leaders, we needed to focus even more on schools, increase testing, increase PPE, and increase restrictions. Meanwhile, these wrong-headed views were uncritically amplified by American media. In anticipation, I had brought more than a dozen studies to the meeting, published articles from scientific journals and government websites, but I didn't pull them out. First, I explained with numbers that children did not have significant risk of serious illness or death from this virus. I cited statistics from New York City, California, and elsewhere showing almost zero risk of death. I noted the data from Sweden, zero deaths despite schools not closing and not requiring masks. I further explained that the harms of children of closing in-person schooling were widely documented, not just in the CDC publication. They were extensively illustrated, dramatic, and irrefutable, and included poor learning, higher dropout rates, depression, and anxiety from social isolation, and massive numbers of unreported child abuse cases. Most of these serious problems were far worse for kids in lower-income families. The icing on the cake was the evidence that almost all coronavirus transmission to children comes from adults, not the other way around. That was not a predicate for opening schools given the massive harms to kids if they were closed, but that evidence was already shown by contact tracing and other studies in Iceland, Canada, France, the Netherlands, Germany, Sweden, Finland, Ireland, Japan, Switzerland, and elsewhere. Open schools and child care centers did not show significant dangers to children, adults, or teachers. As I finished, there was silence. No one offered any contrary data. No one spoke of scientific studies. No one even mentioned the discredited Korea study. Zero comments from Dr. Burks. Nothing from Dr. Fauci. And as always, not a single mention by Burks or Fauci about the serious harms of school closures. In my mind, this was bizarre. Why was I the only one in the room with detailed knowledge of the literature? Why was I the only one considering the data on such an important topic with a critical eye? Were the others simply accepting bottom lines and conclusions without any analytical evaluation? Weren't they supposed to be the expert medical scientists too? I waited. In response, Burks told me that my opinion was out of the mainstream. Quote, there is a bell curve of epidemiologists and you are at the fringe, end quote. Hadn't she heard that I was not an epidemiologist? Meanwhile, she insisted that all experts agreed with her. I shook my head, thinking of some of the world-class epidemiologists who agreed with me. John Ioannidis and Jay Bhattacharya of Stanford, Malton Kordolf of Harvard, Carl Hennigan and Sinetra Gupta of Oxford, and wondered if she or Fauci had ever read a single publication by them. The vice president thanked me and looked across the table, turning the floor over to Dr. Redfield as director of the CDC, the agency that issued guidelines on school openings, quote, what are your thoughts, Bob? What do you think about the risk to kids, about opening schools? End quote. I looked to my left. Redfield leaned back and stroked his chin. Quote, let's just say the jury is still out. End quote. And that was the end of the discussion. I mean, isn't that, that just that blows my mind. All of that data, all of that information put forward, no intelligible response, no refutation of the data other than uh-uh, basically, by Deborah Burks. That's the response is, uh-uh. Um, all people agree with me was her response. No data, no evidence, no quote-unquote science. And this is the truth, and this is what's happening or was happening behind the scenes. And today it's, probably, it's ultimately clear to me that it's still happening because they're still promoting the same uh, crazy policies that, that they were uh, a, a year ago. There was another one um, where Dr. Birch sort of rants on colleges. Um, she goes and basically does some visiting. She's out on the road and she's dialing into a um, to a, an, a, a conference call 
with the task force. Uh, he says, at our next meeting, Dr. Burks was traveling, so she called him from the road. The vice president thanked her for her tireless work, as was his custom, and then handed it over to Deb. Thank you, Mr. Vice President, sir. She began cheerfully over the speakerphone. After her usual overview of trends and color codes, she focused on her visits to college campuses. Burks was describing what she insisted was truly dangerous about the virus on college campuses. It was so mild, so benign, that the overwhelming majority of college-age students never even noticed that they had it. They either had no symptoms or, at worst, were temporarily under the weather. She seemed mortified at their ignorance. Remember, these campuses already understood that the students must remain in the low-risk campus environment rather than go back home. Quote, they don't even know they're sick, end quote, she exclaimed repeatedly and laughed at what she thought was so absurd about it. I began to look around the room. Was anyone but me hearing this? She was claiming this was a total disaster, a terrible situation for the very reason that no one became ill. I checked out Fauci, Redfield, others in the room. Most were nodding, smiling broadly. Several were even laughing along. These students were so silly to think there wasn't a huge problem. Burks declared almost frantically, quote, We really need to start testing the toilet water from the dorms, the drainage from the sewer system. Otherwise, we will never find the cases. No one will know they had the infection, end quote. I was speechless. No one made a comment to indicate they had heard anything odd at all. But then she took the conversation to a new level of absurdity. Burks noticed, noted what she called an alarming trend. The ratio of hospitalizations per case was rising. She listed several states with increasing hospitalizations per 100,000 cases. All attention was focused on this new trend. Burks specified that the total number of hospitalizations was not higher. There was no increase in hospitalizations at all. That meant this was not a worsening of anything meaningful. There was no increase in total deaths either, she stated. Regardless, she reiterated her concern. The ratio was increasing, and her solution was to increase testing of non-hospitalized people. A number of others chimed in, expressing their concern. The vice president, Fauci, Redfield, and Dror all nodded affirmatively. Some muttered something to the effect that this was indeed a very serious issue. I kept thinking, wait, there is no increase in hospitalizations. There is no change for the worse in any way. More testing will not identify any new hospitalizations. It will only reduce a fraction by increasing the size of the denominator. There is no new trend because the number of hospitalizations has not changed at all. Burks then repeated her remedy. We must increase the testing. Again, the other doctors around the table concurred. Fauci nodded. Jaror and Redfield strongly affirmed the solution. The VP agreed and looked around the room and gravely stated, yes, we absolutely need to increase the testing. I finally jumped in. Uh, let me point out something here, if I may. All eyes turned to me. Does anyone here understand what's going on? Does anyone realize the logic here, the circular reasoning? Is your concern here about the perception of a fraction, that the ratio of hospitalizations per 100,000 cases is higher? Cases are defined by the number of positive tests, as we all know. Dr. Burks just showed that the number of hospitalizations is not higher. There are no increases in sick people. There is nothing concerning here. No one said a word, so I continued. Do you all realize that the purpose of testing is not simply to reduce a ratio? You are proposing to increase testing for one reason, to increase the denominator in order to bring down the ratio of hospitalizations per case. But the point of testing is not about changing a ratio. Your solution of doing more testing will achieve nothing other than to reduce that fraction. It will not change the number of people being hospitalized. We already have noted that there is no increase in sick people. 
all patients coming to the hospital are already being tested. There will be no consequence of doing more testing other than to lower that ratio. Your sole point is on changing a ratio by increasing the denominator of a fraction, not on helping anyone. That will change nothing. Again, no one said a word. Burks, Fauci, and Redfield were silent. They offered no rebuttal, nor any defense of what they had accepted beforehand. The VP looked around but said nothing. After a few moments without comment from anyone in the room, the VP went on to the next agenda item. As the meeting ended, the VP noted, quote, so we will make sure we increase the testing, end quote. <laughs> wow. He says, I left the meeting. By now, I surmise that these people were simply incapable of basic logic as well as unarmed with sufficient knowledge to debate. That's just terrible. And it's destructive to to change to to change policy simply because you want to change the perception of how a ratio looks when you've admitted that nothing worse is actually happening. This is the kind of stuff that we've been dealing with. This is what's been happening. When you sit there and think to yourself, there's no rationale for this. Why are we doing this? This doesn't make any sense. You're right. And this proves it. This is behind the scenes into the into the White House meeting rooms, into the coronavirus task force, and you're right, there's no support for these things at all. He goes on to point out um, excess mortality was a stat that was never used by the White House before he got there. Um, and for those who aren't familiar, excess mortality is the best measure of the impact of the pandemic and what's going on, meaning that what you do to assess excess mortality is you essentially look historically and you say, for any given geographical area, how many people normally die in this area, right? And so let's just say, you know, over in a particular county, let's say 200 people normally die uh, per year in, in a given area over, let's say, a five-year period. Well, when you get to the pandemic year, how many people died that year? Is it way more? Is it the same? Is it less? So rather than just looking at an absolute number and saying, well, you know, oh my gosh, 300 people died this year. The question is, is how many people normally die in a year? That's the key question. That really assesses the danger to people. Because as many of you, I'm sure, have thought, we know that COVID deaths have been miscategorized, right? A lot of the, de a lot of the people who, who supposedly died of COVID could have either died from COVID or just died with COVID. So COVID may not have been the primary cause of death, but could have just been, hey, we tested them while they were here. They had a heart attack. You know, they died of a heart attack, but oh yeah, by the way, they had COVID too. Therefore, it counts as a COVID death. So excess mortality would wipe out all of that noise. It would allow you to see the true number, and nobody was looking at that before. There's a really um, good anecdote he shares here that um, I think well illustrates, um, just as in a personal sort of story, the the damage that was being done by this. Um, Dr. Atlas writes, one Friday in late October, I received not one but two emails that left me feeling overwhelmed at the outpouring of support from people suffering under the lockdowns. One was from someone who had written me several times, expressing gratitude and support for my speaking out. As the wife of a doctor and an avid reader about the pandemic, she had sent email after email encouraging me for weeks. She wrote about how it made her blood boil that CNN was criticizing me for not being qualified as their own medical experts and journalists pontificated about COVID without any knowledge whatsoever. She had been so kind, clearly worried about me taking so much media abuse. And then one afternoon she wrote, quote, Dr. Alice, I want to talk to you about something you have brought up a million times at least about the dangers of lockdowns. 
It certainly hit home for me last Friday. My beloved husband took his life while we were on vacation. His depression started when COVID-19 started and the lockdowns began, end quote. Horrified, I continued reading, quote, I just want you to know how right you have been about everything, and I hope you will continue your crusade against lockdowns. If it helps one family to not go through what we are experiencing, it would be a victory, end quote. I started crying, standing there. This was not acceptable. This was sinful, counter to the public good, and abuse of public health. Public health leaders were recommending policies that were killing people with these insane, insane lockdowns. And insane they were indeed. And there's other stories that he talks about like that. And anyone like Scott Atlas or Daniel Horowitz or Steve Dace or any of these uh, talk show folks or journalists who have been writing about early treatment and the lies that are being spread about COVID throughout this pandemic, um, all, all of them have received emails from people all over the country that have all kinds of stories just like this, whether it's through vaccine injuries, whether it's through lack of early treatment, whatever the case may be, um, the impact of the lockdowns, depression, et cetera. Um, and it's just sad. And especially when we know all of it could have been avoided. We had the data. We knew and still know and are still getting lies from the government and still getting harmful policies being promoted. An interesting uh, piece he shares in here um, that's revealing about Dr. Fauci, and I, it, there's so many of these quotes that if you could kind of assemble them all in one place, it really tells an incredible story. Uh, for all of the promotion of testing, you know, as, as you've heard me mention over and over in the review so far, um, testing was the big push, and testing has been the foundation of everything. Yet, listen to this. He says, at the time, I was not aware that Dr. Fauci had stated in a July interview, so this would have been July of 2020, before I arrived, the scientific truth about most PCR tests being performed, quote, at a cycle threshold of 35 or more, and here in North Carolina, our cycle thresholds have been higher than 35. They've been around 37 to 40 and have varied depending on where you get your test. But at a cycle threshold of 35 or more, the chances of it being replication competent, or in other words, contagious, in other words, of that uh, sample being contagious are minuscule you got to say it's just dead nucleotides, period, end quote. So even Dr. Fauci admitted in July of 2020 that the vast majority of the tests weren't even showing contagious disease. And I think I mentioned that. Um, I had a quote from this book back in episode one of the podcast where it was something like only 3% of a test had um, actual infectious disease. Uh, in a three percent of the positive, excuse me, three percent of the positive had actual infectious disease in them. So anyway, uh, just you know, another incredible quote, and just one that um, you know we shouldn't forget. Um, he gets into the towards the end of the book. He gets into um, the states and how they performed, and specifically Florida. He talks about Florida's success story, and um, more specifically, he points out Ron DeSantis, and I think Ron DeSantis is definitely worth um, putting a highlight on. Dr. Atlas says, and I'm just sort of clipping a few snippets here, he says, Governor DeSantis stood out among governors because he was one of the very few who actually knew the data. And throughout the book, uh, Ron DeSantis is the only governor that uh, Atlas mentions and repeatedly talks about how much he respected him and how he handled things and how he looked at the data and changed course. He goes on to say, it also required one more trait, the strength of personality to withstand the political heat when acting on the facts, even when the chosen path was contrary to the recommendation 
of the media's anointed experts and the often erratic guidelines for the CDC. Governor DeSantis would use most of our calls for one main purpose, to test his understanding of the data. It was almost never the case that he had a need for an answer to his questions. More typically, he would tell me his own analysis, then ask if he was correct. Without fail, he was spot on with his analysis. And he goes on to compare how well Florida did um, with respect to the pandemic compared to California, for example, and, and other states. So um, just to, for those who don't know, Florida reversed course in um, summer of 2020 and ended the lockdowns and all that type of stuff. And, it, and obviously, if you've paid attention to the news, they've been um, really a standard bearer in terms of resisting COVID fascism and a lot of these terrible policies that are hurting people and promoting the good and getting people back to normal. To this effect, uh, Dr. Atlas writes, as of the end of spring 2021, Florida's performance stands out as proof of the epic failure of the lockdowns recommended by Fauci and Burks and on the on-the-ground policies implemented in nearly every state of this nation. After a full year, we know the answer about Florida, the only large state that implemented a strategy of focus protection, the one large state that I personally advised during the pandemic and that rejected the Burks-Fauci strategy. And here's some of their accomplishments. Florida beat the national average and outperformed more than half of our states in COVID deaths per capita. Florida ranked first of the 10 largest states in having the smallest percent excess mortality increase during the pandemic, a percent that includes deaths from the virus and the lockdown, the most valid epidemiologic statistic to compare deaths during the pandemic. Florida beats 40 states in age-adjusted COVID mortality for the vulnerable population age 65 and over, and likewise beat approximately the same number of states for all ages. Florida had a 40% lower age-adjusted mortality for seniors and for all residents than the U.S. as a whole. Florida far outperformed California with its younger population in virtually every meaningful way, an important comparison because those are similarly diverse states with a relatively similar climate, but one dramatic difference. The governor of California imposed and maintained strict lockdowns while the governor of Florida opened his state in the summer. Florida beat California on age-adjusted COVID mortality for those over 65 by 30%, on an age-adjusted COVID mortality under 65 by 40%, and on percent excess mortality during the pandemic by nearly 60%. Florida avoided the extreme destruction of poor and minority populations, whereas California's policies specifically devastated them. And so again, good on Ron DeSantis and the work that uh, he's done there and continues to do. He's up for re-election this year um, and certainly hope that things work well for him. And I point him out because he's likely to be a candidate for president in 2024. And I think as we've seen here, um, he's the one who's done it right, uh, more than, more so than anyone else. And certainly not to say that Trump did everything wrong, um, but I think he had some critical errors in judgment with respect to the management of the messaging, communications, um, and implementing his strategy that were, quite frankly, detrimental to the American people. That's just the truth. It's also important to note that this was all a danger to Scott Atlas personally. Um, you know, Scott Atlas was attacked by his Stanford colleagues. Uh, many of those who weren't even in, you know, uh, medical scientists or in the health policy field. But it's important to know sort of the price he's paid personally. It's, uh, in addition to, you know, the criticisms in the media, et cetera, Dr. Alice writes, although the criticisms by the Stanford professors were blatantly false and demeaned the university as a center for the free exchange of ideas, the consequences of their distortions and lies were not trivial. I was on the receiving end of a stream of vile, hate-filled threats, mostly by email, but some by phone. 
The FBI had become involved starting while I was still in Washington. Now that I'd come back to Stanford, the university and local police forces were alerted. Among other protections, I was forced to install thousands of dollars of home security equipment. The police parked a car at my driveway 24-7. A constant security presence was visible on my street. I can only hope my Stanford colleagues and their families never experienced what they recklessly instigated for mine. And so there was a price to pay, you know, for all of this for him. And, um, you know, I, I thank him for his sacrifice. And this is what it takes. You know, if, we, if we're going to stand for freedom, if we're going to stand for the truth and we're going to fight for freedom, we're going to have to sacrifice for it. We cannot be afraid and back down. Um, he ultimately provides his resignation to Trump. Um, and so he, he had a sort of a tenure, I think, that was supposed to be up around the end of November, December. So after Trump and them lost the election, um, he was still supposed to come back for a little bit of time. And instead, he basically was like, I, I can't handle this anymore. You know, I, I've got to go. Um, and so just a few comments from that conversation. Uh, his, or his, he, So he calls the president basically to let him know he resigned and thank you for the time. Um, so when he calls, he gets connected to the president and the president replies, thank you, Scott. You did a great job. We had a great relationship. We got a lot done and you worked hard. You're a fighter. I appreciate that. The president said, thank you. And then he said some things. And then the president said, thank you, Scott. And I want to tell you something. You were right. You were right about everything. In that moment, the memories flooded back about how the White House, the president, and his closest advisors were ultimately held hostage to the fear of the polling instead of making the necessary changes to the task force. They had let Burks and Fauci tell governors to prolong the lockdowns and school closures and continue the severe restrictions on businesses. Strategies that failed to stop the elderly from dying, failed to stop the cases, and destroyed families and sacrificed children. The closest advisors to the president, including the VP, seemed more concerned with politics, even though the task force was putting out the wrong advice, contrary to the president's desire to reopen schools and businesses. They had convinced him to do exactly the opposite of what he would naturally do in any other circumstance, to disregard his own common sense and allow grossly incorrect policy advice to prevail. For months, his inner circle feared rocking the boat ahead of the election. They stopped the president from getting rid of people who were grossly incompetent purely because of the election, solely because those highly visible bureaucrats were viewed positively by the public. This president, widely known for his signature, you're fired, declaration was misled by his closest political intimates, all for fear of what was inevitable anyway, skewering from an already hostile media. And on top of that tragic misjudgment, the election was lost anyway, so much for political strategists. So I decided to say it, to be blunt and honest, as I always was with him, I didn't really care about his reaction, even though I was going to insult his most trusted counselors. This had to be said to set the record straight, and maybe because he was on speakerphone and I was fully aware his key advisors were probably standing right there, I wanted to say it out loud. Quote, well, Mr. President, I will say this. You have balls, I have balls, but the closest people around you, they didn't. They had no balls. They let you down. End quote. And obviously, while humorous in the way he put that, he's absolutely right. Um, his advisors did let him down. But more importantly than that, Trump let himself down. As the chief executive, you're responsible. The buck stops with you. You can't blame it on your advisors. If your advisors are doing the wrong thing, you got to fire them and you got to get new ones. And he didn't. He let their judgment get in the way of his judgment. And it cost him dearly. And it cost the country, at least with respect to COVID, for sure. Um so then Atlas gets into some reflections um, about his time. And uh, just to kind of, I'll just kind of go through some of these real briefly. Um, 
as far as the the Trump administration's response, he has a lot of positive things to say. Um, I won't go through all of those, but he talks about different policy decisions he made to like shut off travel to China and different things earlier. A lot of things that he got criticized for um, that were that were very good. Um, so it wasn't all bad. His assessment's not all bad, but but there was that critical failure um, to sort of take charge and um, control the messaging. Also, you have to conclude that the lockdowns failed. You know, any assessment of the lockdown strategies has to conclude a complete failure of that. And again, you know, the fact that the the coronavirus task force was promoting that um, and Trump is the president, you know, he's got to take some ownership for that. Um, he's got a whole chapter on the science. And this I think you'll find really interesting. Um, a lot of great data in there. Um, I'm just going to go down the list of his conclusions real quickly uh, just for the sake of time. But again, all the, this information is worth get you need to get a copy of this for yourself because you need to keep it for the record you know we need evidence of how badly things were handled so that a it doesn't happen again and b so that we can hold people accountable um, but the things he goes through were um, projections were and he proves all these things but the the projections by scientists on you know remember early on in the pandemic it was like oh cases are going to go you know through the roof you know millions and millions of people are going to die and all this kind of stuff and in every case, these projections were wildly inaccurate, false assumptions, and created a lot of unnecessary panic. So the projections were wrong. Children are not at risk. Schools are low-risk environments. Schools should have been reopened. Masks don't work. Lockdowns were destructive. And the failure of academic journals. So those, he goes through each of those things in detail, talks about why, gives evidence, has the data, etc., um, but does a really great job. And, and really, and, and, and at the end of each one of them, he goes, and that's the science. So I th- thought he did a good job there. Um, it's worth sharing. Um, his He had a chapter essentially devoted to the media, um, and it's important to note some of the things, the observations that he made, um, because the media matters, as I mentioned earlier. Some of these statistics I think will grab you. He says, quote, more than 9 million articles had been published from January 31st through July 31st of 2020. Think about that, 9 million articles in just those six months. On every important issue, America's media was pushing a biased narrative. America's reporting was alone and virtually always being negative. Nine of ten stories by all of America's major media outlets were negative in tone. Fox News articles were as negative as those from CNN. The comparison outside the U.S., the major news stories were negative only half the time. Even when new COVID cases were declining in the U.S., articles describing increasing cases outnumbered stories of decreasing cases by a factor of more than five to one. And then lastly here he says, America's media created a frightening false narrative about schools with biased news. While the world's data was overwhelmingly positive about schools reopening, 90% of school reopening articles from U.S. mainstream media were negative. Only half or 56% were negative in other countries. So, you know, again, the the media was killing it here in terms of negative perception. And so when we say the media is being biased and negative and all this, I think a lot of people on the left dismiss that as like, oh, you're just haters. You just they just don't agree with you. And that's why you don't like it. The fact. But but these are the facts that the, the percentages that I just gave you that Scott Atlas provides in this book proves that they were not only being negative, but negative when that wasn't the truth. That was not the correct narrative. And they were doing it anyway to uh, continue what was going on, to keep people afraid, to keep people scared so that they would obey the lockdown measures. 
Um, he then goes into social media, which obviously sort of in a similar vein. He says, it was not just the conventional or legacy media that aggressively tried to demonize me and my views. Social media, particularly Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook, was actively suffocating voices, including mine, that dissented from the accepted COVID narrative. By August, Facebook told the Washington Post they had taken down 7 million posts, quote, for spreading coronavirus misinformation, end quote. 7 million. Meanwhile, Wikipedia crafted smears and distortions of my background and then locked it out to edits. (laughs) Wow. Um, He says, on October 18th, just as one example, Twitter blocked my account. I had posted a multi-part tweet the day before questioning the efficacy of masks, listing cities and states where cases surged through masking and quoting authoritative data, including CDC, WHO, and Oxford. I also reiterated warnings to observe established mitigation protocols, including masking and social distancing when appropriate. Yet the message provoked prompt uh, yet the message provoked prompt censorship and a temporary ban from Twitter. Um, when he got his notice uh, from Twitter, basically that he was being censored, he says, I quickly clicked the link to accept their censorship, a necessary part of my reinstatement. The next morning, I posted a simple tweet without any mention of mask. Quote, the party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. It was their final, most essential command. And if all others accepted the lie which the party imposed, if all records told the same tale, then the lie passed into history and became truth, end quote. That's from George Orwell's 1984. And how true that has become today. If we let the lie be told long enough, the lie will ultimately pass into history and become the truth. And that's why we've got to keep fighting this. That's why we stand for truth. That's why we fight for freedom is because if we don't, then we let the liars tell the history and we let the liars become the truth. Um, Trump actually, even uh, when Atlas first came to Washington, uh, Trump said something to him that I thought was important to share. He says, uh, the president then memorably said to me, quote, and this is regarding the media, I'm sure you will teach me many things while you're here, but there is only one thing you'll learn from me, only one. You will learn how vicious, how biased, how unfair the media is. You already know they are fake news, but you have no idea how badly. That is the one thing that you will learn from me here, end quote. And in Learn It, he did. In fact, just to show you how bad the media was on Scott Atlas, listen to this uh, montage that uh, was put together. Uh, that someone else put together, I didn't do it, but someone put together on how the media treated Scott Atlas. Let's check this out. Anyone left who can reason with the president and say, you know, Dr. Atlas isn't the person you should be listening to. It looks like Scott Atlas is just another one of these handpicked crony doctors who uses his MD as a fig leaf for uh, the president's own narcissism. He is violating his Hippocratic oath. First, do no harm. He is doing harm. Yeah, he's out of his element here. He's way in left field and it's harmful. I wish he wouldn't say any of this stuff. The science advisor to the president, I put science in quotation marks, so I'm not sure what science he follows. He's sort of the medical Rasputin. I think we can definitively say Dr. Atlas may be a smart guy. We should not be listening to him at this point. It is harmful. A controversial doctor with a history of peddling disinformation on the virus has no place speaking about this. Has no background in public health. No experience. Not an infectious disease expert. Not an epidemiologist. Not a virologist. No particular pedigree. No legitimate background to be opining on a pandemic. It would be like seeing a podiatrist for your heart attack. You you wouldn't go see a podiatrist for a toothache. It'd be like 
hiring a painter to do your reef, roof because they both work on houses. So he's not helpful. He's harmful. It's harmful and it's it's really useless. He is completely unqualified. He is basically a right-wing hack with a medical degree. So it's really unfortunate the president is listening to him, not an expert, not someone who understands public health, instead of listening to the actual people who know what they're talking about. And so you can hear, based on everything I've shared with you so far, and looking at Scott Atlas's background, these were all just smear tactics and lies. But anything to discredit an alternative voice other than what Fauci and Burks uh, were putting out. He also mentions, um, in reflection, his two biggest surprises. And I think this is really important for us to take away from this as well, because we play a role in this. He says, quote, in considering all the surprising events that unfolded in this past year, two in particular stand out. I have been shocked at the enormous power of government officials to unilaterally decree a sudden and severe shutdown of society, to simply close businesses and schools by edict, restrict personal movements, mandate behavior, regulate interactions with our family members, and eliminate our most basic freedoms without any defined end and with little accountability. And secondly, I remain stunned at the acceptance by the American people of draconian rules, restrictions, and unprecedented mandates, even those that are arbitrary, destructive, and wholly unscientific. The acquiescence of the citizenry to such extraordinary and ill-conceived restrictions in a nation that was founded on the principles of freedom from an overbearing government in a country that stands as the world's beacon for independence and liberty is nothing less than shocking." End quote. And so the two things he mentions here, and we cannot forget this, number one, how easy it was for them to lock us down, and we didn't do anything. We just took it. And the second thing was how we responded. It was what they did and how we responded. We think of ourselves, we're in America. We are supposed to be the freest place on earth, and just that easy. It shows you how far we have fallen from where our country began. Basically, what we learned from this is that you're not as free as you think you are. And the only way you're going to remain free is you're going to have to fight for it. As President Reagan said in the intro uh, to the podcast, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. And that's why I put it there. We need to be reminded of that all the time, that if we want to keep freedom, if we want to be free, we're going to have to keep fighting for it. Uh, for our sake and for our children's sake and for our children's children's sake. Um, so what kept Scott Atlas going? Um, here at the end, he shares um, sort of his why. You know, in the face of all the criticism and everything else, it would have been so easy just to quit, you know, give up, go home, let somebody else do it. Um, but he hung in there, and he's, and he's still hanging in there. Um, and he says, however, there was something far more important than any of the negative hit pieces. Something that lies and distortions from hateful people can never overcome. The media, the politicized scientists and health agencies, the university attackers had no idea what was driving me on in the face of their attempts to discredit and cancel me. First and foremost, I knew I was right. People were dying from the virus and the lockdown policies were not preventing the deaths. The simple logic of assuming you could stop the spread and some said eliminate a highly contagious virus by shutting down society after millions had been infected was worse than nonsensical. The idea of stopping all businesses and closing schools while quarantining healthy young people at little risk from a disease in order to protect those aged 70 and over, that is simply irrational. Meanwhile, the ca catastrophic strategy tragedy of the prolonged lockdowns was simply denied by those imposing them. 
The failure to stop cases and deaths was being ignored. This was active destruction of humanity by decree and on a massive scale. It was absolutely inconceivable, and it would have been morally wrong to sit silently and watch such gross incompetence destroy millions of people. But there was also a more personal inspiration that helped me persevere. My colleagues, top scientists from Stanford, Harvard, and all over the world kept cheering me on with their reassurances that, quote, truth will prevail, end quote. The epidemiologists whom I respected the most kept encouraging me. We knew without a doubt that we were correct. The data proved it. Fundamentals of biology and infectious disease proved it. Analysis of the harms of missed medical care, psychological damage from school closures and unemployment, and the lives lost from the economic shutdown proved it. Then there were the contacts from perfect strangers. Throughout my time in Washington, I received a continual stream of emails, hundreds per day, thousands every week. They were overwhelmingly positive, encouraging me to continue. Many were frankly emotional. Some were very difficult to read. They came from all over the country. Hundreds were from outside the U.S., Europe, Canada, Brazil, Asia. Some were from researchers, medical scientists, epidemiologists, computer scientists, and students offering their data and asking for my thoughts or help in getting their studies published. But most were from regular citizens, young and old, mothers and fathers. Many were seniors who knew they were in the high-risk group, but were passionately opposed to the lockdowns. They repeatedly told me they did not want to continue living under lockdown conditions without seeing their grandchildren and loved ones. Reverends, school teachers, school board members, parents, teenagers, and business owners related their personal stories. Some asked questions about data. Some contained very personal details that I could never have anticipated from perfect strangers. Many used words that truly moved me, almost begging me to continue speaking out, pleading with me for their kids, their elderly parents, their students. Some assured me they were praying for me, reminding me that millions more were supporting my efforts to open schools to end the lockdowns. I still receive many kind of supportive emails today, some from journalists who never even interviewed me. I truly thank them all for their support. Many painful emails will also forever stand out. They are heartbreaking to reread, but they too served as a profound inspiration to me. From what seems like an eternity ago, but is just one year, a pediatric ER doctor wrote to me, wrote to tell me that she agreed about reopening schools. She said her Michigan hospital was seeing an explosion of severely beaten kids, some near death. She wrote, pediatric emergency medicine doctors everywhere knew kids would pay the price of unemployed parents staying home too long in the form of hunger and beatings, end quote. Several other emails told me to keep speaking out because their husband or child or elderly parent had just committed suicide from the isolation of the lockdown. They still remind me of what's really important and why it's so necessary to stand up and speak for the truth, no matter what. And that's what we've got to do, folks. We have to keep speaking the truth, no matter what. It's critical, or else we let the liars tell history. We let the liars prevail. Remember, the enemy, the devil, for those of you who are Christians, and whether you're a Christian or not, the devil is real. And the Bible is clear that the devil is the father of lies. And this is how it all starts. This is the root of all of it. It starts with a lie. And what has come from these lies? Death, destruction, people's lives being destroyed. That's what's come from this. And we, the people, We, those of us who know the truth, have to keep speaking it no matter what, because the truth matters and the truth will prevail. So let's get to some actions we can take. (music) 
Number one, um, and Dr. Atlas points this out in his book, we need to we urgently need to restore trust in vital institutions. People have lost complete trust, a complete lack of trust. They have lost trust in government, in health officials, in medicine, you name it. And those, the trust in those institutions are vital for the sustainability of our republic. And so we need to restore that. Well, how do we do it? Well, number one, we've got to hold those at fault accountable. We cannot let this go. All of us want to get back to life as normal. I want to get back to life as normal. You want to get back to life as normal. And I hope that will come sooner or later. And, and, I, and I'm doing as best I can, and I hope you are too, to bring that about. But even when that day comes, we cannot forget what has happened. And the people who have implemented these policies at the federal, state, and local level, I mentioned that Project Veritas report in um, my last podcast. Go back and listen to it. There's a reference in the show notes. Go to that report and read it. These people have known this stuff all along. They've known that the early treatment lies about ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine were lies. They've known about the vaccine. They've known about the spike protein. They've known all of this stuff. They've known about the gain-of-function research. They've known about Wuhan. They've known all of it, and they've been lying the whole time, and they've all got to be held accountable for this. And we need people who know the truth to speak up Tell your story or encourage someone to tell their story. If, you, if your doctor has been treating patients with early treatment, tell them to tell their story. Tell them to contact me. I would love to interview them and hear their story. These stories need to get out. We need to tell people the truth about what has happened in all phases of our society. If you have inside information on anything that has happened and how these lies have been promulgated, these things need to be brought to light. Light is the best disinfectant for this. We've got to pull this stuff out of the darkness and into the light. Tell your story. Get other people to tell their story. Next, we must think for ourselves. Uh, you know, have you ever you know, been watching a TV program or maybe playing with an app on your phone or looking at Facebook or something, and all of a sudden you, know, you, fall, you fall down some YouTube rabbit hole or something, and an hour goes by, and you just think, you know, I think I just got dumber. You know, has that ever happened to you? It certainly has happened to me. And that's what's happening in our society today. Almost everything around us, our phones and everything is conditioned to this sort of mind-numbing state where we just take everything that's fed to us. Our children in schools, in most schools, are just being taught rote memorization. They're not taught critical thinking. And so when they get out on their own, when they become adults, they have no ability to think for themselves. They just take what everyone tells them to do. Proverbs fourteen fifteen says... The inexperienced one believes anything, but the sensible one watches his steps. And that's what we've got to do, folks. We've got to watch our steps. That's why I read books like this by Dr. Scott Atlas, because I want to know what's going on. And I'm not saying everything everybody says, you know, that I read is correct. I mean, is, is Dr. Scott Atlas is writing everything he said? Well, I mean, all I can say is prove it wrong. You know, if, there, if there's something here that's incorrect, I want to read the data that shows that it's false. But the point is, is that we have to read these stories in order to know. I read uh, articles from liberal publications as well because I want to hear what their arguments are. I've thought through this pandemic. What if I'm wrong? Let me look at the other side of the data. So, you know, we have to be critical thinkers. We have to constantly be willing to reevaluate where we stand on things and think for ourselves and not just take what people tell us. You know, I hope you get good information from this podcast and I do, I will do everything I can to provide you the best information available, but I encourage you to do research on your own. 
as long as I have the time, I will, I, I try to attach all of the article links in the show notes so that you can go read these articles for yourself, so that you can look it up on your own, so that you don't have to take my word for it. And finally, I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged and keep fighting for the truth because truth matters and wins in the end. There's too much at stake. We've got to keep moving forward. And I think in reflecting on Dr. Atlas's book, we have seen the truth win out. The truth is winning out in places like Florida. Some of these lockdown policies are going away. We're, we're not doing exactly the same things we were doing back in 2020. And that's largely due to people like us speaking out, telling the truth, going to your school board and county commissioners meetings. And we have to keep going until this stuff ends. So I hope you enjoyed uh, this book review. hope it was informative to you. I hope you get something out of it. I encourage you to buy a copy of the book. Again, it's called A Plague Upon Our House, My Fight at the Trump White House to Stop COVID from Destroying America by Dr. Scott Atlas, former advisor to the president. Uh, it's a great book, well worth the read. Buy it for yourself. Help, uh, you know, essentially contribute and, and reward Scott Atlas for the work that he's done. And also keep this record for yourself because it's important. You can use it for reference material in the future. Well, that's all today, folks, for this bonus episode. Thank you so much for listening to the First and Freedom podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and give it a five-star review. That will help ensure other freedom-loving North Carolinians find it as well. Um, the show can be found on Apple, Spotify, Google, or anywhere you go for podcasts. If it's not where you listen to podcasts, let me know. I definitely will try to get it added. Finally, if you have any additional feedback on the uh, show or any topic ideas, you can email me directly at firstinfreedom1776 at gmail.com. That's firstinfreedom1776 at gmail.com. Until next week, be first in freedom. <laughs>